When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Appreciate you so much giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. So we try to do what we always do, turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to some stuff that actually matters with good information so we can discern better the times we live in. Appreciate you, however you're listening, watching, or whatever. Uh, let's start with the politics of food. And yes, food has politics involved in it. Even a cursory reading of history will tell you a lot of power, a lot of wars, a lot of who's in charge and who ain't. A lot of that comes down to food, controlling the food supply, who makes it, who eats it. That's all of us who can get it to where it needs to go. Food's always been political. Two stories that seem like they have nothing in common, but they do. First one, Mountain State Spotlight. Uh, Clay County, that's one county over from Braxton County where we lived until we moved back up yonder permanently when I was about 10, 11 years old, but right up Route 4 there in Clay. Uh, Clay County lost their only local grocery store. Now folks got to ride over to Flatwoods, um, to the Walmart, or they can ride up to the Kroger in Gasaway, but they're going to do some driving to get anywhere near a food store. Um, what does that got to do with this other story? Chicago one of America's largest city from one of America's most rural places, Clay County, West Virginia, to one of the largest cities in America, Chicago, Illinois. Um, they're having a problem with food deserts there as well. And the mayor has pitched a couple ideas, one of them being maybe they should have municipally city-owned grocery stores after Walmart, Whole Foods, and others have closed stores in parts of their city. Food deserts, rural, food deserts, urban. Can the population get to a source of food in a timely manner? This is a very political story, but it's also a very human story. You got to be able to feed your family. If all you got is a gas station or maybe a Dollar General or something like that, that's what you're going to be eating mostly if you don't have means to travel long distances. Some of these food deserts, even in an urban environment, even in a major city, if you don't have access to mass transit or can afford mass transit or means to travel or get somebody to take you there, 
you doesn't matter if it's nearby, you may not be able to get to the store to get what you need. So what do we do to solve this problem? Well, there's multiple answers. I don't think the city-owned food store is a good idea on a multiple levels. One is, you know, having actually worked in retail, but more importantly, my professional background is actually in transportation. I'm telling you right now, that's going to be a disaster because the city doesn't know how to run it and the vendors and the producers and the places that are going to sell the items to them are going to absolutely take them for a ride and gorge them. Grocery, especially in retail, is a very thin margin business. Um, it's going to be expensive. It's going to be poorly managed. It's going to be a disaster. Um, people are going to take great advantage of the city. It would be better to just incentivize these stores to come back or new stores to open or even better for people in those communities to open those stores. I'm not a huge fan of subsidies, but if you're going to subsidize something, just subsidize somebody that knows what they're doing to at least come in and do it. Try that. What do you do in Clay County, West Virginia, where there's not a really, frankly, the population isn't big enough to probably support a large store? Could you do a small store? Could you do farmer's markets things? Well, those aren't sustainable year round because local folks don't make stuff year round. What's the solution there? There's no good answers, but there's a couple principles we can keep in mind. One is what we started this conversation with. This is a human problem. Too often in policy, we start with, big terms like a food desert or urban or rural or whatever, and we forget people need to eat. And that's a political and policy problem. How do you get food at a reasonable rate to people who really need it? Is there a role for government there? Is there not a role for government there? Is there a role for policy? This is something we don't talk about enough when we're discussing things like policy. How do you let people eat? How do you let people have stores? One of the things is, of course, environmentally, what can you do? Can you incentivize the businesses to do it? Does the government come in and give more assistance to these particular communities to try to help them out? Now, lots of people will get on ideological kicks about how to fix this. I want to pitch it this way to you, though. I'm just not telling you the solutions because there aren't any easy ones. I'm not telling you what's right or wrong here because there's just a lot of we need to try something to make it work. I want you to keep this in mind, though. People are limited by things. They're limited by their transportation. They're limited by their income. They're limited by the kind of food they can get. And when we're talking about limiting the kind of food you get, you're talking about you're limiting their lifestyle, which is not only going to limit things like their lifespan, but it's going to exponentially affect things like health care costs. So you can rave about things like welfare, food stamps, unemployment, SSI. These are things that if you don't take care of them on the front end, get exponentially more expensive on the back end as government has to step in and take care of these people if they don't have other means to do so. I'm not a big fan of big government, but there is probably going to be a role here in the government stepping in and helping take care of these people on the front end because that's still going to be cheaper than taking care of them on the back end. I know that ain't popular in a lot of circles, but do we need to look at these things like food deserts? We get into a lot of goofy things like caffeine bans and soda bans and healthy living this and healthy living that. Giving people access to food is something that is in the public interest. But how do we do that in a responsible way, whether it's in Chicago, a major city with all sorts of issues, or Clay County, which is a rural issue? Do you think of those two things as being the same problem? The answers won't be the same, but the problem is the same. They have food deserts. They have people that can't get to food that they need to have to live there. And what do we do about it? Take a wider perspective on this problem and understand that, yes, food is political, good and bad. And the bad faith actors will use things like food 
to push bad faith answers. More power for them. More money for them. I guarantee you, you start having city-run grocery stores, there's going to be some corruption involved. That's the nature of the beast. But can you look at these problems and understand that food is political and understand that it's a people problem? Maybe we should adjust our priors a little bit and come up with some really creative solutions here. Because if you don't, we're just going to keep getting more of the same. Hungry people, not functioning government, folks that are hurting, people, politicians, and political circles taking advantage of it. That's not good for anybody. We end this program every day saying we hope you are well and well fed. It's hard to have a happy life with an empty stomach. This is an issue we need to come together on and talk about because there is no good answers. You better start coming up with something. More hotel right after this. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Back to Hertel, our buddy from over yonder, Ben Harris, is back. He rolls around in the halls of Parliament over there in Westminster, so we always enjoy talking to him. Good to see you, buddy. Glad to have you back on the program. Thanks, Andrew. Good to be on as always. I love having you. Uh, we got a couple things we're going to talk about, but uh, let's start with the politics side of it. Um, we covered a couple weeks ago with our buddy Jack. Um, you know, there, there's been a few things that have been in Rishi Sunak's control. There's a few things that are not in his control. All of them seem to be converging all at once lately. We've had the school scandal with the concrete, which really was, mm-hmm. it was bad for a lot of reasons, but but kind of, it was almost like a breaking point where just everything kind of hit all at once. And, you know, yeah. the streams all crossed. It just, uh, you know, you start screwing with people's kids in schools. That, that goes beyond the politics. Now everybody's mad, that sort of thing. Now, on top of that, we got this Chinese spy scandal. For the folks that weren't really following, you know, in America, we're really touchy about China. We know undue influence of China and Russia and others. We know London is kind of a hotbed for a lot of this stuff. Walk folks through this Chinese spy scandal that has now uh, enveloped a lot of the conversation. Yet another bad thing folks don't want to talk about, but just get everybody up to speed on it. So, essentially, someone who does my job, um, was was discovered to have been, or was, was acute, allegedly has uh, been spying for China and was arrested back in not March. Not you. Like, you have your flaws, but just to be clear, this is not you. You did not nope. do this. No, no, no. But someone who does my sort of job, um, who does, you know, the same sort of job title, uh, who he was arrested back in March for allegedly spying for China. He denies allegations. And, um, yeah, there's a current investigation into that. And um, there, there have also been previous cases, I think, of Chinese spies, um, working or with parliament passes or working close to MPs. And I think because we have so many MPs, we've got 650 MPs, it's it's 
it's not hard if you're trying to just slip one or two through the net. Uh, and that's the problem we've been having. Uh, I mean, China also, we are a lot more sceptical of China now than we used to be. Uh, under George Osborne and David Cameron, the government was a bit too close to China. And it's good that in, in the years since, we have realised that that was a big mistake. Um, but yeah, China, Rishi Sunak is a bit of a China dove. He's not He's not very hawkish on China. He, he's obviously, he's not nowhere near as close as David Cameron and George Osborne were, but he is, he is reluctant, it seems, to take a hard, uh, hard stance on China which is unfortunate. Now, how much of this, let's be fair to the prime minister for just a second. His background, the way, you know, he's a businessman. Um, he's, you know, he's probably one of the wealthiest prime ministers y'all have ever had, independently wealthy. He was educated in the States. He's, he's very, you know, he's, how much of that's just kind of his worldview and personality. I know he's dovish on it. I don't know that he, thinks of it first and foremost as a foreign policy issue. I think he thinks of China in a business sense, but that is a viewpoint that is widespread across the globe where they just see China in a sort of a business sense and don't naturally go to them as a geopolitical foe. Is that part of the problem with his outlook and why it's clashing when you have a story of this? Like, no, they're just not you know, a huge economy to do business with. They also have a dictatorship that does a lot of really malicious things in the world. Uh, I think there is definitely an element of that, and that's a good point. But also, I think this is what you have to remember, pretty soon, like in almost everything he does, is that he was chancellor, and he is, has what we call treasury brain. He, uh, the chancellor, the the treasury has a very, a very odd way of looking at things. Um, and of course, he used to be chancellor, and I think he essentially sees China with his treasury treasury hat still on, which is money and that's all they really care about the treasury. And I think he has brought that to number 10 somewhat. So he he will see he sees, like you said, he sees China as a business thing. And I think part of his upbringing and where, where he comes from and sort of the money he's been involved in, but also partly I think that's because he was Chancellor for several years. And I think he sees it as he looks at things like Theresa May, for example, was a good example of someone on the other side. She was Home Secretary for six years, and I think she often saw things through a security lens. Rishi Sunak sees things through a business uh, sort of treasury lens, and I think that's what you have to look at when you when you look at prime ministers is what their previous jobs were. Yeah, and this isn't the first China headline. Uh, was about a year or two ago we went through the whole thing with the UK where. They were trying to extract Huawei and the Chinese influence out of some of the infrastructure with the Wi-Fi and yeah. the broadband and that sort of thing. So this this is something that's kind of fresh in people's mind. When you talk about treasury brain, this is where these things start combining, where he was in charge of things. You know, schools fell under his preview. The previous uh, controversies with China and the Wi-Fi and the broadband, that fell under his preview. Now this is a you know another thing that was previously under his preview that's coming back to bite him as prime minister. This, you know, this happens to politicians, all politicians, when they're, you know, on the wrong side of the hill of political opinion. This stuff just seems to be avalanching on Richie Sunak right now. Like, if it can go wrong, it goes wrong, and it's showing up. In fact, yeah. But in fairness to him, actually, the concrete stuff is obviously is partly his responsibility, but also it, it's, it's, from what I can gather, it's a, it's a long-running issue, which successive governments on both sides have failed to deal with. And it's just he's just been unlucky that it's just come out under his watch. Um, so I wouldn't blame him. I blame him partly for that, but I actually blame previous governments just as much. So uh, I think he's been very unfortunate there. Um, I'd be right. You know, we're, we're, it doesn't doesn't rain; it pours, and it does seem to be doing that for for Sunak in the last uh, year or so since since to become prime minister. You raised an interesting point a little bit ago, Ben Harris. Uh, people argue about the parliamentary system and the American system and how different they are, good and bad. There's there's 
you know, points for both. You just mentioned this. There are a ton of MPs. You have something like 240 more MPs than we have members of Congress. And of course, population wise, much bigger country, much bigger. Are there is, is here's a term they, you know, Richie Sunak, you know, right size. Does parliament need right sized or thought rethought? Because it seems like y'all got a lot of MPs. And it, is it unwieldy? Does there need to be some reform there? Is anybody even thinking about that? Uh, yes, actually, it's funny you should mention that. There is going to be reform on that. So I think at the next election, there's been new boundaries drawn. And I think Parliament will be actually uh, reduced from 650 MPs to 600 MPs. So it's going to lose 50 MPs, which, of course, isn't a massive amount. But um, it does. It is. We are we are cutting it down a bit. And that's good. But of course, that is leading to problems now where certain seats are being in the boundary changes. Certain seats are like your district changes. Certain seats are being abolished or merged into one. And you've got a situation now where two, two sitting MPs, perhaps even the same party, are going for the same seat. Uh, so that has led to some, some uh, issues there. My boss's seat isn't really changing much, but there are lots of seats where they are changing quite a lot and you know, MPs are losing out. <laughs> Ben Harris joining us. This leads us to the uh, elephant in the room that's hanging over all of UK politics right now. When's there going to be a general election? Um, we've, we've been talking about this before. And like, I think the calculus for the conservatives and Richie Sunak, I think their calculus has now changed. They were trying to just kind of wait it out and find some kind of sliver of good news and then call an election and hope for the best. Are we in rip the bandaid off mode now where they're just going to have to do it? You've had 12 years now of them in power. There's just a 13. lot of inertia. You know, it, are we in rip the bandaid off mode now with them that they're just going to have to kind of pick their spot and take their medicine? Is that how they're starting to see it? Uh, I'm not sure. I think at the moment, I think they're still in. Let's wait. Let's just keep it as long as possible. Because I think the main issue still is cost of living and inflation, which is which is going down finally but it's not going down as fast as I think instead of hoped. So um, I think they will just wait it out. And I think inflation is the big thing. And I think at the moment it's about 6% possibly. I'm not sure exactly what the level is. It's definitely a lot lower than it was a few months ago, but it's taken a while to filter down. So I think they will probably, uh, from what I've heard, it seems to be autumn next year will be, will be the year. Usually it's, it's May. Elections, elections are usually done in May when they're called but i think it'll be it can be up to any any point up to january 2025 so i think it will be autumn 2024 is looking likely um, unless something unless there's loads of good news between now and then and they just decide to do it then i don't know yeah ben harris joining us all right let's hit a couple of the big issues going on in the uk the immigration thing is still there and just is not going to go away there's this there's a there's a macro problem and a micro problem with the immigration debate the the larger issue is the UK has a demographics problem and a population problem, and then they have a political problem where immigration is a really hot button issue. That's a bad combination, my friend. Yeah, um, no, it is, and I mean, we, we our, our demographic problem is similar to many many European countries. Uh, I don't think people realise that birth rates are just not what they used to be, and that you know, without we we do need at least some level of immigration. Uh, but I think the, the problem actually, the bigger problem actually now is not so much immigration levels, it's the illegal migrant crossings, which actually, you know, the, the, 
that, that those are two separate issues. The the, the the legal legal immigrants that come in is a separate issue from the illegal migrant crossings over the channel. And I think the government has been severely damaged by the fact they've just failed to get uh, a grip on the, the migrant crossings. But a part of it is out of their own hands, because, for example, they tried the, the Rwanda plan where they, they were going to send illegal migrants that cross the channel to Rwanda uh, in like to, to sort of um, so, so their cases could be heard there. But um, the European Court of Human Rights put a stop to that. So the, the government is has has its hands tied a little bit, and I, I don't really know how to get around it. Ben Harris joining us. Another issue, um, again, not unique to the UK, certainly, but one that's a problem. You talked a little bit about inflation, and it has a lot to do with this, but big problems with things like housing, cost of living. Mm. We've talked to you. You've been on this program for almost three years now every time you're on here it seems like we got to talk about cost of living look you're one of those you work in parliament you have a pretty long commute when you want to go home and see the family you have to deal with things like this where are we at with the housing and living crisis because it doesn't seem like it's really improving the inflation's going up and down that'll affect it a little bit but the core problems of just not having enough housing in the right places and the infrastructure thereof doesn't seem to have really improved much well, this actually touches on a key issue. So this, this, in my opinion, supersedes inflation, it supersedes government, it supersedes both parties. We have a problem in this country of nimbyism, of nimbyism and a low growth mindset. People do not want things built uh, in their own backyards. And that is the simple fact. And it's so hard. The planning system here is gives too much power to people who want to stop development in the local areas. And we've had decades of low house building, which has not been able to meet demand. And that's why we have a housing crisis right now. It's, it's, an, issue, it's an issue that goes way beyond the current government or any government. Uh, and actually, I think it's almost a societal problem. People in this country are just, they're just people, lots of people who just want to block things. And we don't like change or any sort of growth or development or building. And it's hard to get stuff built. I mean, I think, it, it, look at HS2. It's taken so many years just to go through consultations there. And it's barely, the progress is so slow. Heathrow, we're supposed to have an extra runway there about a decade ago. And we're still going through these these laborious legal uh, consultations. And it's just, yeah, it's a large problem. I don't really know how to get around it. Yeah, for the American and the international audience that aren't familiar with it, where's the bottle gap at at that? Because it's one thing for people to not want to change, but there's a legal, ma is it at the local council levels? Is it at the local government levels? Is yeah. The larger government? Because the way England and the UK is specifically is run, those, those local governments have enormous power when it comes to things like development and growth and build. It's just a little bit of a different system. Kind of walk folks through that. Well, so yeah, local local councils and local governments have a lot of power to stop things. And there was a particular ridiculous example recently where uh, there's a military base. I think it's actually in my county of Kent, and um, they were training Ukrainian soldiers there because obviously we train lots of Ukrainian soldiers, and then they go out to Ukraine, and we we give them the training that they need. And there was some people complained that the military, their local military base, their live fire drills were too loud, and so they had to cut down on the number of live fire drills they were doing with these Ukrainian soldiers because of some complaints. And it's just insane that our, our, whole, our whole foreign policy, and we've done this well, is geared around helping Ukraine. And a local council has basically been able to stymie some of that because of, because of the, you know, the system. And it's, it's, it's absurd. Yeah, don't let those folks ever live anywhere near Fort Bragg now, Fort Liberty. They would not enjoy <laughs> exactly. all, the, all the live fire that you can hear for miles because that thing's the size of Rhode Island. Uh, ben Harris joining us. One more thing on the UK politics, and then we'll move off it. But um, not a lot of talk, but a lot of our friends that we talk to, your peer group that's a little bit younger than me, 
Is there a danger of Britain having a little bit of a brain drain? Because a lot of the, they're already talking about trying to reform maybe how university exams and things like that are done. It seems like a lot of that rising working class, the upper classes, the educated class, a lot of them are starting to think about maybe going abroad. They seem a little stymied. This is where that housing issue really starts hitting because, you know, you have to be 25 to 30. You don't want to be living with mom and dad anymore. And a lot of them are having to just out of, you know, not even having anywhere to go. Is there a danger in that? Because if you're going to have demographic problems, if you start having a brain drain out of that class of folks, that's going to perpetuate a lot of other problems. Is there any movement to kind of start addressing some of that? Because that's your own very peer group. You've seen some of this. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a gro- I've definitely seen people my age as a growing sort of sense of, well, this country doesn't offer much for young people. And wages here are relatively low, especially compared to the US. Wages, wages here are ridiculously low. And... Um, but are the government doing anything about it? No, because at the end of the day, um, it's the old people that vote and all the parties, just to a certain extent, are in hock to uh, sort of uh, house homeowning pensioners and they are they always will, will prioritise them. So, for example, we've got this thing called the triple lock, which is that state pensions um, have to rise by, I think it's the rate of inflation, um, something else and something else. And basically, whichever whichever rate is is high is what, is what that rises by. And the government are still not abolishing the triple lock. The, the opposition are not going to, not going to abolish the triple lock. And it's just um, essentially they, they, in terms of what the government offers to young people, they offer very little. Whereas pensioners do get a lot. They get a lot of, and obviously I understand some, some pensioners are in poverty, but they do get pensioners as a whole, even ones that are quite well off, do get a lot of benefits that they simply don't need. And the government has always been very geared to, some people describe the UK as like a retirement home of nuclear weapons. And I think that's a great way of putting it. Um, we are a retirement home of nuclear weapons. We are set up around the elderly and there's just simply nothing for young people. Yeah, you're not the only country that we've got, of course, our own issues with, you know, things like social security here in America, that's gonna, you know, it's a time bomb waiting to go off. So it's not unique, but y'all are definitely going to have to deal with that. Ben Harris joining us. Okay, buddy, let's fight about it. Um, Rishi Sunak decided to come out and advocate for a ban for the the bully XL dogs. Now, pit bulls are already banned in the UK, from what I understand. Um, this is a new one. Look, I'm a pit bull owner. I got one. Um, let me start here, though. Before we get into the particulars, was there any version of this that's not a, a floundering politician pandering for a cheap pop in the press? Because that's kind of how that's felt before you even get into the details of it. Now, I, I've been a big critic of Richie Sunak, and I'm criticizing him for lots of things, but this was a good decision. In fact, my criticism would be he should have done it earlier. Because these dogs, and this is this is a, a particular subbreed of the pit bull, as I understand it. Um, so this is yes, not, it, 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 it wouldn't be, I, your dog, I don't think, would even come under this, 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 this it's basically these, these American XL bully dogs are, from what I understand, they were introduced a few years ago, and about half of them are descended from the same dog, the same violent dog. And it's basically that they're very inbred, and it's a very, as I said, it's a subset of the pit bull. It's a very particular subset, niche subset here in the UK. And they're responsible for about half of all attacks on humans and other dogs 
despite comprising less than 1% of the UK population. And that is a huge uh, statistical, it's ridiculous. I mean, it, it, they, they dwarf all other dogs in terms of how dangerous they are. Um, and there's been calls to ban them for a while now. And I think it's just reached, there's been a few attacks and I think it's just reached fever pitch now and the government realised it had to do something. Uh, you, you're probably right. It probably was done because they wanted just, they're floundering and they wanted to just latch onto something that might give them some popularity. But nonetheless, it was the right thing to do because this is a very dangerous dog breed and people don't realise that um, it doesn't matter how well you train them. These this particular dog, these particular dogs are inherently aggressive and they were bred for aggression and fighting. And there have been lots of cases of, of well-behaved dogs like this who have just snapped one day randomly and killed a toddler or killed an adult and um, I don't really see why should we why should we have this situation continuing? They 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 kill disproportionately, and there's just no there's no there's no there's no need for it. Yeah. So the, this particular breed, um, which is bred in the UK, they started, as far as we can tell, sometime in the nineties. Again, I'm a I'm I'm an owner of a of a pit bull that would not fall under this specific ban. It would fall under the wider ban, though. Um, here's the deal with this. I get it. You have individual dogs that get uh, aggressive. They have to be euthanized. I get that. I had to euthanize one of my dogs years ago because they got a uh, brain tumor thing, just started acting weird. You know, you just have to put them down. There's nothing you can do about it because, you know, they can get aggressive and dangerous. Yeah. I don't like the bands of the breed, even though I understand this is, look, this breed did not decide to do this. They were designed by a human being to do this. Yeah, it's not anytime, their fault. No. Yeah, you have a breed. Anytime you go, for, and people here want to do a, a pit bull ban in America, you hear it from time to time. There's never, ever been an example of dog breed that did something untoward that if you don't go far enough, you find the malfeasance and or neglect and or bad behavior of a human being somewhere in there. So I think we go to the bands too quick without dealing with the human behavior. I get UK's different. You know, I'm not going to bash y'all system because it's a little different. I understand this is a very specific extreme example of it, which is a little different than just the wider, you know, breed bands we see in America. Yeah. But I think it's worth pointing out, look, these are human beings that decided to make these dogs be this way. Well, That's the behavior you should be targeting legally. Yeah, oh yeah, certainly. And and any any ban would have to have a would have to have a focus and a crackdown on these breeders that, that breed this stuff. because um, we have to obviously tackle the problem at source because obviously what we don't want to happen is this this dog ban this dog breed to be banned and then ten years down the line some some nefarious breeders come up with some other dog which is also just as dangerous. Because like, as you say, it, it is it is it's not the dog's fault, it's the the, pe the breeder's fault. And we do have to tackle the root causes of it. And I just hope that the, you know, the legislation does do that. And I hope that it's you know successful in that and that it's hard for, for criminals and those types to get around the ban. Yeah, Ben Harris joining us. Okay, it's not all doom and gloom in the UK, though. There are some good things going. You're in Parliament. You're plugged in. Give folks, especially those of us across the pond who are looking for uh, you know any kind of a relief from our own news, so we look at yours. Give us one or two things to look in the headlines, some positive news that's coming out of the UK, some good things that are actually happening, bounces all, because it kind of looks like y'all and us are going to be having election season at the same time. We're not going to get the usual relief of making fun of the other because we're going to have a hot mess at the same time. Give us two or three good headlines to be looking for in the coming days. I think one of the good things, it's not, it's not a headline as such, more just as a general situation, is that despite all the issues that we have, compared to uh, mainland Europe, we're still quite good at uh, being resistant to extremist parties. 
So you look at France, for example, uh, Marine Le Pen is probably the favourite to be the next president of France. Uh, you know, the National Rally Party are far right, hard right. They are definitely extreme. And likewise, in Germany, the AFD, they're also extremists and they, they're getting 20, 30 percent in the polls occasionally, I think. And likewise, they've got a far left party, the left, they're called, and they also get about 10 percent of the polls. And we simply don't have that here. So here it's Conservatives or Labour. As much as I as much as I rip on Conservatives and Labour, both parties, neither of them are extreme. Certainly not Labour under, under Starmer. As much as I don't like Starmer, he's not like Corbyn, he's not anti-Semite, he's not extremist. And I feel like in terms of extremism, we still are quite resistant to that. Uh, when there's lots of, lots of countries in Europe where they do have growing extremist parties on far left and far right, we do tend to resist that. And, and obviously we've got, we've got an unpopular Tory government, but what will, that, what will that lead to? It will lead to a centre-left Labour government. And when they're unpopular, we'll get a centre-right Tory government. And we just don't have the same kind of uh, tendency to flip towards extremes as a lot of countries do. And that's a good thing. And it, we, we, we've still managed to weather that quite well. Yeah, Ben Harris, always enjoy catching up with you, my friend. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you till we get you back on Hertel again. The next time something crazy happens over there, we got to talk about it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, ben Harris, appreciate you, my friend. We'll talk soon. I'm going to link to all this. We'll put his Twitter up there as well. Take care, buddy. Thank you. Thanks. See you later. Yes, sir. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, new face on the program. Always enjoy having new people in from a group of folks we know very well, our Young Voices contributor. Uh, she's been writing in a couple different places. Happy to introduce you to her, Victoria Snitzer Churchill. I think I got that middle name right. Did I get that right? 
That's me. Thank you so much for having me on today, Andrew. Great to be with you. Thrilled to have you. We've been dancing around each other schedule-wise because I had chainsaws and tree cutters and then she had construction, but we finally got her on the program. Um, apropos of that, people worry about, look, I got a little bit of an inside joke. My dad has some humor. His gun safe in his house has this sticker on it that says faith and the faith is cut out. So the background is through the faith and it says, you know, the evidence of things unseen. That's on his gun safe. You got to understand the humor <laughs> a bit. This gun safe thing is really funny. Um, let's start here. We've all heard the ads. This is a obviously a group they specifically target and advertise to conservative groups. We hear them all over talk radio and podcasting and things like that. Is this a little bit made your bed, didn't know what you're walking into, and they just kind of walked into it? Because it feels like they kind of set themselves up for failure here. Yeah, you know, I think they definitely did. I mean, this is a company that touts themselves as being pro-freedom, pro-America, and with their actions, with you know complying with something that they thought they had to comply with from the federal government, and then they 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 actually did it right. So they first had a couple of requests, then the FBI came back with a warrant to get access to this guy's Liberty gun safe, and uh, you know ever since they have really been trying to make up for it. And they have not been able to. They first, uh, first kind of the video of the raid was published on social media. That took fire. Then they put out a statement, kind of explaining their actions. That went very poorly. And then they made another statement, trying to correct the record, saying, "Hey, this actually, um, you know, we're changing our policies." And they got thrown into the fire for the statements they made on that again. So, just mistake after mistake after mistake is what we're seeing from Liberty Safe. Yeah, here's part of the story on this I think we need to touch on, though, is what's the legality of this? Because to be fair to them, when the FBI comes knocking and you're a company with you know very thin margins in your business model, you just want them to basically go away as quickly as possible with the least mess and fuss. That's how the business is viewing that. They're not viewing it as, oh, we want to dig in and fight here. They just want to try to comply and go about their day. I don't think they were trying to start anything back. The specifics here are important, though. This was a generalized warrant. What that does and doesn't cover, do they need a warrant? Look, this is broader in society. Can they take your phone? Do they need a warrant for certain parts of your phone? Do they need a warrant for your Wi-Fi to look into your phone? This is part of a bigger conversation. This is just a new example of where the le- the law is trying to catch up to technology. But this is something, you know, do they need the specific warrant for the specific safe? Walk us through that part of this story so we get it right before we just get to the outrage. Yeah, so that's the thing is that the FBI obtained a warrant for the property, but at least, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but at least the way that I see it legally is just a citizen that is very concerned about privacy and security and, you know, making sure that the things I have in my house, I have full control over. Uh, The way that I see it is that they had a warrant for the property, but not to open things on the property. And, you know, we've seen this, as you mentioned before, with things like cell phones, you know, cell phone companies have gotten requests from law enforcement to get into somebody's phone and they've not complied until they had basically a court-ordered subpoena, um, which is the point to which this did not get. Uh, And Liberty Safe, kind of the other irony is that they, on their own website, say that if a customer has an issue getting into their safe, um, because this safe has uh, an electronic lock, not just a physical lock, um, so if their customers are having an issue getting into the safe, they advise them to call their local locksmith saying that they can't do anything remotely. However, when it was the government asking instead of the customer, they kind of bend the knee and they took this action that caused all this outrage. Yeah, Victoria Snitsen, our Churchill, joining us. 
Uh, we started with the generous part. You know, they're just trying to get the let's take the ungenerous view here. What really upset people I know, especially people that have firearms and safes and stuff, you know, look, if you've got a safe, you're probably a responsible gun owner because that's what you're supposed to be doing. So these aren't the fringe folks. These are people that care about this issue. They were really upset that there's a backdoor way in that they were not made aware of. Now, I'm sure if you go through enough fine print, it's probably in there somewhere because otherwise that'd be company suicide and we're going to see a class action lawsuit like you've never seen. But that's what really fired folks up is maybe they should have read the fine print, but that's not what's being promoted. That's not what's being advertised. Now you've got people feeling like it's an invasion of their privacy on top of whatever the FBI was trying to do. Is that how you read it as you were going through the social media reaction and those sorts of things? Yeah, I mean, that's how I feel about it as a gun owner, the house responsible gun ownership. Um, you know, I, I don't agree with safe storage as if mandated by the government, but I think that you as a responsible gun owner should take it upon yourself to make sure that your weapons are kept somewhere where only the people that are supposed to use them have access to them. And that is why folks purchase a gun safe. Um, you know, right now in my in my own family, it's just myself and my husband. But, you know, as we talk about having kids down the line in the future, we're going to need a better way to store our firearms that only he and I can access them. And, you know, any future kids we may have won't be able to access them. Um, and so, like I said, you know, this is conversations that I'm having in my own household. And I think that these were echoed really all across the country, like you said, by responsible gun owners. Um, and, you know, a, a gun safe, as I've talked on some other people that I've been talking about this issue with, you know, it's a very significant financial investment. They start at a few hundred dollars, but they go up to six, seven thousand dollars plus of what you're paying to have one of these. So this is a purchase that you think about making um, probably for a while to do it, right? You know, especially in this day and age when folks don't even have a $1,000 for emergencies. I think it's like 70% of Americans don't even have that. So if you're trying to buy something that costs $1,000 to seven, $10,000, um, you're gonna be thinking about that. You're gonna be saving it. And you wanna make sure that that money is going somewhere that supports the very freedoms that you're exercising. And that's why I think folks were so caught up about this is because you know they've invested significantly in this company. Um, I saw in particular one person saying, you know, I just put in my order for a seven thousand dollars safe, and I am not giving this company another dime of my money. So um, you know that that's just one person that that I can particularly point out. But I think that's kind of why this has set the Second Amendment community on fire. This issue because. You know, I think gun owners as a whole are a little bit, um, you know, as they say, have a healthy distrust of authority, right? Like that's kind of why we even want to have our rights to keep and bear arms. And so um, when a, the government and a private company has pretty much put in a perversion of everything that we hold near and dear, that's where we get fired up. Yeah. Victoria Churchill joining us. This is why I started with the advertising thing, because a lot of the social media that you were doing with your piece over at um, American Liberty, and we're going to link to the whole piece. You can read through. She actually has the tweets on there. She has the statements in there. You can go through all those. That's why I started with the advertising thing, because, look, a gun safe, I'm a transportation guy by trade. First thing I think of is, like, it's not easy to put a full-size gun safe in your house. Like, once it goes there, it's staying there. These things are heavy. It's a huge financial investment. But that's why I opened with the advertising, because... Things like firearms, good, bad, and indifferent, and some people make fun of this portion of it, it is a very personal thing. This feels like an intrusion. I know people were trying to compare this to the Bud Light situation and that, and I get that they want to boycott and get a corporate you know, head on a pike and all that. I don't think that's a fair comparison, though, because 
that was just something that kind of triggered the culture war stuff. You said it. This is something that's in people's homes. They feel violated by this. And it's on an issue where the people who are doing this anyway feel especially touchy about it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, again, as a gun owner, right, like you have guns to protect yourself, your family from anything that intrudes upon your livelihood, your well-being, your family's safety and security. And again, as, as a company that's founded on promoting these things that their audience cares about of safety and security, um, you know, they, they really messed up on this one. And- Church of joining us. I, I'm curious about it this way too, though, because you have done some media on this. You've wrote about it. You covered it. You saw the social media. You've also done some radio hits on this and some media stuff. When you do like hits on a topic like this that became a nationwide story, was this uniform how it recovered? Because it's interesting. Sometimes you do radio in certain parts of the country, you get different takes on things. Has this been pretty uniformly blowback on Liberty Safe? I think so. Um, you know, one of the hits I did was out of Utah, which is where the company is based. And so obviously they were really interested in it for that reason, because that's just a company that's in their own backyard. Um, so there was that interest in it. But then again, because this company has a national audience and, you know, as I talked on, on another uh, spot, you know, gun owners, uh, by at least my estimates with the numbers that I've seen, you know, just people that own an AR-15 uh, are about uh, 30 Um, million Americans. Again, these estimates vary because we don't want the government knowing exactly who has what guns. So the numbers vary between, I guess, 25 million to 40 million. And then obviously with the U.S. population being just over 300 million, that is a pretty significant chunk of the populace. Uh, But again, that is just for kind of the most commonly owned firearm. Um, But it's it's because of, of privacy that the government can't, you know, they can't subpoena any firearms company and ask how many firearms did you sell this year, right? Like that, again, is a trust that the customer places in a company, especially with something as personal as a firearm, um, that kind of that is that relationship between the consumer and the company that they are giving their money to. And when the government gets involved, that's where we get skeptical. And so for us, again, this is this is kind of the biggest red flag, right? Like we talk a lot about red flags in the Second Amendment community. This is a big red flag for us. Yeah, and it came from inside the house, which is why people got upset about it. Let's kind of bow tie it this way, though. Um, when you're talking about something like a gun safe, look, I'm not a boycott person. I don't call for boycotts. You just look, vote with your money how you want to vote. I'm not a boycott people. I don't do that. That's me personally, though. I get people that want to do it. Is it even fair to call something like this a boycott? Because this doesn't feel like just, well, some executive said something stupid or it doesn't feel like, you know, well, they they did a bad advertising campaign. and there's That's not this. This is something where a company has broken trust with their core audience over their core product. Is that a fair way to examine it? Because that's not really a boycott, although people will be calling for that. That's just, you know, that's like Coke going to New Coke and people are like, no, I'm not drinking that. That's not my product, right? Like they, this is something a little more fundamental than just a cancel culture buzzwordy thing that we do on social media. Does it, is that a fair way to lay this out? 
I think so. Again, because I think when you make a mistake as big as this, existing customers and future customers aren't going to come to you ever again. So I don't really know who is actually going to want to purchase anything from Liberty Safe ever again because of this massive debacle that they have ended up in. Um, and so, you know, I think a boycott is kind of a, a temporary, I guess, punishment for a corporation. Uh, but I think that this is going to be permanent. Like, I, I think they're just going to go downhill from here. Um, you know, they're, they are the largest gun safe manufacturer in America, but there are other com uh, companies that have come out and said that they don't want this. This is not how they treat their customers. And they're kind of making themselves known. Um, there's one specifically that I mentioned in the article. They're based in uh, Syracuse, New York. I believe it's Securit is the name of the company. Um, and they've gone out and said, hey, this is not how we would have read this situation. This is not the action that we would have taken. Uh, but they also did that in a way that very tactfully did not even mention Liberty Safe by name, but because the community is so aware of it, they knew exactly what they were talking about, which again, I think is another, um, you know, a very good PR move, right? If we're talking about good and bad PR moves uh, with them, that one is just a perfect way to sum it up and kind of insert themselves into the situation and present themselves as an alternative. Um, but yeah, there's Securit, there's uh, Fort Knox is another one that's very popular among thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of gun owners. So, um, you know, there are other opportunities, right? Like that's one of the beauties of a capitalist free market system that consumers, again, you know, there's something um, many of us at Young Voices talk about quite a lot is the issue of consumer choice. And that's why we want other alternatives to exist. And as customers, we're going to choose companies that align with our values. Again, especially a community like the Second Amendment community that is very sensitive to these issues. Um, and, you know, we don't want fake companies that just say they're for privacy and security. We want that and we're going to go somewhere and we're going to spend, you know, like I said, multiple hundreds, if not multiple thousands of dollars with companies that align with that. Yeah, Victoria Churchill with us. I wanted to ask you this because you have a unique perspective. You know, you went to school in Kansas. You live in the D.C. area now. You've moved a bunch of times. I, did I read that right? Eleven times. I mean, you're up there with me and I was active military. It's pretty <laughs> bad. You're also a naturalized citizen. You've You've been about everywhere you can be. So that means you've heard people talk about this issue in all kinds of ways for, against, lukewarm, don't care, very passionate. What's a better way for us to talk about stuff like this? Like this is an issue that's very internal to the to folks that are Second Amendment and they're really upset about this. Most people aren't. How do we talk better to people who don't fully understand the issue and be like, no, this is a core thing. Like gun safety starts with securing your weapon from everybody. Um, how do we discuss this better? Because you you do professional communication now, but you've heard this argument from all sides. Give me a couple of ways we could talk about it in a little more productive way than just the buzzwords on our social media. I have. Um, you know, I, I always the other issue that I talk about outside of Second Amendment is immigration. So when I talk about immigration, I say, you know, as a naturalized citizen, somebody that did things by the book the right way, nothing really annoys me more than illegal immigration because I think it's a perversion of the system. I feel a very similar way about Second Amendment rights and the gun community is that the folks that are doing it the wrong way are giving us the bad name, right? Like when people are stealing firearms, committing crimes, you know, defending like drug raids and things like that with stolen firearms, that's what gives guns a bad name. But how I see it as a member of the Second Amendment community is that guns are, you know, an ultimate tool uh, to protect your life, to protect your family, to protect your property. And the, you know, liberals always say that, um, you know, you can't stop a good guy with a gun or a bad guy with a gun with a good guy with a gun. Um, but, you know, as the Second Amendment community, that's 
absolutely what we believe, because the only thing that gun control does is take away firearms from law-abiding citizens that want to exercise their constitutional rights in a positive way. And so the only people that are going to be left with guns are the criminals. Like, yes, it's a talking point, but it's also very true. Um, this is something that, you know, I even see, as you mentioned, I live in the D.C. metro area. I live in northern Virginia. We've seen radical uptick in crime. Um, and I wrote another piece for Young Voices just a few weeks ago of how my own congressman, Don Byer, Virginia's 8th congressional district, wants to put a thousand percent excise tax on firearms, uh, anything that he qualifies as an assault weapon. And that's anything with over a 10 round magazine, despite the fact that a Glock 19, which is America's most common firearm, um, comes with a 15 round magazine as a standard. So the people that want to legislate on this, they don't have the first clue of what they're talking about. And that's what really um, kind of inspired me to go into media specifically on the Second Amendment issue, because so many uh, people both that legislate on the issue and write and talk about the issue don't have the first idea of what they're talking about. Yeah, and there's a core principle there below that. Whatever you think about the Second Amendment and gun control and those sort of things, immigration and gun control have a same core problem is that our government has a real habit of trying to cure crime by punishing law-abiding people. And you're never going to fix illegal immigration until you fix legal immigration. you got to do them together. And part of the problem with gun control is, you know, you're never going to get rid of guns unless you streamline and leave alone law-abiding gun owners. You know, you can't fix crime punishing law-abiding people. So that's a good point. It's a good deeper point for a lot of our politics, not just those two issues. But I appreciate your perspective on that. We're going to link to her whole piece um, and all the links, some of those tweets are actually pretty funny when you read through them. We'll see what happens with this. Victoria, let folks know where they can keep up with you, where they can follow you and what you got going on until we get you back on Hertel next time. Yes. So I am at Twitter uh, and Instagram at snits underscore churchy, S-N-I-T-S underscore C-H-U-C-R-H-Y. Uh, and you can just Google my name, Victoria Snitzar Churchill, and you know most of my recent publications and hits will come up under that. I'm working on a website, so hopefully that'll be kind of a centralized place, but at least for now, you kind of got to look for it. But I promise that's coming soon. Yeah, promises, promises. I've done that one. I'm <laughs> too careful of that. Uh, Victoria Snitsky Churchill, appreciate your time so much, ma'am. Thanks for the conversation. We'll talk again soon. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thanks for having me, and I'll see you soon as well. to her tell let's end on a good note and do a karen story no not that kind of a karen story an actual karen a good karen a wonderful karen a karen that deserved to have something good happen to him and did this is from back uh september 7th washington post sent in by uh her tell substack subscriber missy appreciate you sending this one in for us to note you can do the same by the way either on the substack you can contact us or send us a story you want us to cover or talk about her tell at gmail.com however you want to reach out but anyway let's talk about karen washington post karen collinsworth car was already on its last legs then a thief crawled under it and stole her catalytic converter a part that can fetch hundreds of dollars on the black market Make matters worse, someone targeted her 2004 Kia Monte again a few weeks later, rifling through the inside and stealing some loose change in July. 
While she saved up for a replacement car, she drove the rattle trap to work and back, knowing it was trying her luck and needing a reliable car. I kept pushing it off, said Collinsworth, who's 65, who has worked for 13 years as a barista and supervisor at a Starbucks in Huntington, West Virginia, on the Marshall University campus. Hey, I know this place well. I worked in uh, Huntington around Marshall for a couple of years, right across the river there in South Point, Ohio. Back to the Washington Post. She told her colleagues, most of whom are students of the school, about her car problems. Her co-workers, who for years have known Collinsworth as an unofficial mentor and mother to the countless students, wanted to help. Us baristas were talking. We decided it'd be amazing to try to get care in a reliable vehicle, said Jaden Horde, 19, who worked at Starbucks for about a year as a sophomore at Marshall University. She and the other Starbucks baristas started a GoFundMe campaign called We Love You Karen. This is great since Karen's kind of become a bad word on social media, so I like this. Back to the Washington Post. They hope to raise a few thousand dollars for Collinsworth, who remembered not only her customers ordering, but their names and sometimes even which classes they are taking. She often, in the stands cheering them on at sports games, they posted the campaign all over social media. And within a week, the baristas were astonished to see how much Collinsworth mattered to people near and far more than $40,000 poured in, most of them in 5 and $10 donation segments. It just skyrocketed, said Melinda Witt, 20, a Starbucks barista in her junior year at Marshall. It makes me so happy. She deserves the world. The overwhelming response to the campaign, she said, is due to the amount of people she has touched through her entire life. Collinsworth has worked in the hospitality industry since 1978. Before starting at Starbucks, she waited tables at local restaurants for 26 years. Quote, I always wanted somebody to have and experience wherever I work. To me, it's just so much fun making people happy. I always throwing out the compliments, Collinsworth added, and I always mean them. More than 1,200 people have donated to GoFundMe, including the Marshall University president who contributed five grand. That's good politics on top of everything else. There are also dozens of comments on the campaign and social media. We know Karen for years, wrote one person who contributed 50 bucks. She always took care of us. She mothered Lauren and Kelly when they worked at Starbucks. She's an angel. Another comment. Karen always made me smile when I came into Starbucks every day. She knew my name and my order by heart. She really cared about everyone who came through the doors. Here's another one. Karen saw me through grad school with a huge smile on my face every day. I hope she knows the impact that her presence has made on so many of us. It's been 10 years since I've seen her, but I still remember her fondly. Collinsworth said she can find the words to express the gratitude for everyone who showed their support, especially fellow baristas. This is more than a thank you, she said. The words are there, but I can't say them. They're in my heart. While she's always enjoyed working in restaurants, Collinsworth said her job at Starbucks has been the most rewarding. Quote, these kids make me feel good. They make my day every day, and I love them so much, and the warm feelings are mutual. From the moment you come into contact her, your family, said Horn. She treats everyone with so much love. Horn and her fellow baristas said watching Collinsworth interact with people, including the sleep-deprived students in the early mornings, has been eye-opening. She has me realize that the kind of somebody she can really change their entire day. On September the 4th, Horn and several of her Starbucks colleagues took Collinsworth out for dinner to celebrate the success of the GoFundMe campaign. I felt like it wasn't real, she said, adding she's planning to buy a Subaru SUV. This means the world to me. While it would be a nice touch to finally have a functional vehicle, she said she was far more touched by how much the community cares about her. They did this out of love, Collingsworth said, and I am very lucky. Good for her. Good on the Marshall and Huntington community. Great people down there. Enjoyed my time there. Uh, we will link to the entire piece, Washington Post. This was written by Sydney Page. Did a good job on it. 
enjoy it, share it, make sure you put that little bit, that little nugget of niceness into your day. And that'll do it for Herd Tell. Always like to end on a good note. Make sure you're doing us a good note, though. Can you make sure you're subscribed and following on whatever platform you're listening and or watching, whether it's YouTube, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, uh, whatever the platform is. Make sure you let them know that we're watching, that you're listening and watching. Uh, we appreciate it. That's for a couple of reasons. One is it helps us track the metrics so we know where you are so we can keep getting you the program the way you want to get it. The other thing is, if you leave a comment, you leave a rating, that helps those platforms know that we're worth promoting and let other people find us. We'd sure appreciate it. Also, important news, happy news. We took us uh, a couple months off from doing this program. We are now back on Coastal Carolina Network. Get to work with my old radio producer, TK. Excited about that. Um, the Coastal Carolina Network, they do some really good stuff. They do everything from music to environmental, conservation, other things. Uh, app.coastalcarolinanet.com. They have all kinds of stuff, audio and video. Check them out. We're going to be linking to them soon, but all the Hertel episodes are up on there as well. Appreciate you sort of supporting them if you're in the Coastal Carolina area. Always looking for ways to expand out Hertel. So, till we talk to you again, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. We'll talk to you again real soon for more Hertel. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church in Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.